Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Microbe Moment. Today, we will talk about Monstrous Microbes, Part 3, continuing on our 13 Most Monstrous Microbes. I'm John. And I'm Tess. Now on with the show. So, we're going to start with number 7, which is one of my favorites. Okay, they're all my favorites, but this one is especially a favorite. The Salem Witch Trials. So we'll take you back to Salem in the summer of 1692, in the time before America. There were just 13 colonies and Boston was growing into the bustling, 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 bustling city that we know today. And just outside Boston is a little town called Salem. And this is where the Salem witch trials occurred. And there were two girls whose ages were 9 and 11 who claimed to be possessed by the devil, causing mass hysteria and colonial mass, colonial, 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 colonial Massachusetts, colonial. resulting in the brutal unethical murders of at least 18 witches. And one warlock who was stoned to death. Some people think it's more than 18. It probably was. Probably was. Fear was rampant at the time. Yes. So this was a pretty traumatic time. And the young colonies, they didn't really know where their place was in the world. They were still under the Queen of England. King of England? The British Empire. The monarch. The monarchy. Science was pretty non-existent at this time. And politics drove a lot of mass hysteria. Not much has changed. But some people believe um, maybe it wasn't all politics. Maybe it was the bread. Regardless of the root of the Salem witch trials, whether for political gain or quite literally from the root of rye, it's completely horrifying how far this hunt went. This, of course, is until you look at our current situation with the pandemic and the election, and then you realize we haven't really changed that much as a country. Still driven by madness of the words of tweens and politicians. It's just absurd. But anyways, on to the drug theory. So some people believe that the Salem witch trials were actually triggered by a bout of ergotism. What is ergotism? So ergotism is caused by Cloviceps purpurea, which is a fungi which causes hallucinations, fits, muscle spasms, and convulsions. Ooh, that sounds... Witchy? Possessy. <laughs> Indeed. So ergot, or ergotism, is um, infected of rye bread, but also in other grains. And what it, it is, it causes these purple club-like structures within the bread. So the bread doesn't look like that bad, but it's kind of bad. Um, and Cleviceps purpurea likes a damp spring, like most fungi, and severe winters. It's sometimes also called St. Anthony's Fire, which is a pretty cool name. Yeah, I think that's a lot cooler than ergot. Yeah. So often the spores are carried by the wind until they find their new rye plant home. Once then, they infect the ovaries of the plant and form hyphae, hyphae, or candida. Once it starts to grow in the plant, C. purpurea produces gloratia or ergot, the purple-black growths that contain ergotamine and lysergic acid and replaces the normal grains. So the theory of ergotism causing witches and 
the Salem Witch Trial, was proposed in 1976 by Linda Corporeal. Corp no, that's too many letters. Corporal. Corporeal? Caporeal. Caporeal. I have to say it like a robot in order to say it. But anyway, she proposed this theory that the conditions in this time were perfect for ergotism. And while the symptoms causes convulsions and muscle spasms and hallucinations, they could have uh, mistaken this for witchcraft because they seemingly don't have control of their bodies like possessions. So as a side note, um, we talked about lysergic acid being produced by C. purpurea. Uh, this sounds familiar, then you're probably a washed up hippie um, because it's what is in LSD. So LSD stands for lysergic acid diethylamide, diethylamide, which where is the S come in in LSD? I think it's just, they took the S from- Lysergic? Yeah, it, which doesn't really- Shouldn't be LAD. Yeah, it should be LAD. At any rate. That, that LAD got you tripping balls. That LAD got you tripping. LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, which is derived from the lysergic acid produced by C. purpurea. Back to the Salem witch trials. People thought they were possessed or that they were witches. And so people are pointing fingers all over the place. So during the Salem witch trials, they actually admitted spectral evidence into the proceedings, which was testimonies in which witnesses claimed that the accused appeared to them and did not and did them harm in a dream or a vision, or they could have just made this whole thing up. So Cotton Mather was a minister, a writer, a pamphleteer, and he was like, that's absurd. Maybe we shouldn't listen to a bunch of teenage girls about whether or not they've been possessed or had dreams or visions about these other women in the country. But the politicians were like, no, 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 no. Let's listen to the teenage girls because when have teenage girls ever overdramatized anything? Yeah, um, I'm sure dreams are great to have as evidence in, in court cases. Yeah, definitely is worthy of hanging a bunch of people. Anyway, Mathers was like, that's crazy. We shouldn't do it. And the politicians were like, shh, 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 we almost got our way, bro. Like, shut your face hole. Anywho, um, so the politics may have had an equal amount of play or more in play than perhaps this ergotism theory, ergotism, ergotism ergotism i had a lot of coffee today so did the ergotism are they saying that everyone was affected by it um but or just the two uh girls so i mean it's hard to tell because it was so long ago but um a lot of well so they were saying the people who were witches or possessed had ergotism because they had the convulsions so um it could have been a lot of people or, but a lot of what we know comes from these two teenage girls who were, I think, daughters of some rich, some rich people at the time. And they were pointing their fingers at some not so rich people in the town. At any rate, the intensities of the Salem witch trials lasted throughout the summer, but started to lose interest by the fall. And by 1963, the whole thing was over. Did I just say 1963? Mm, well, that's obviously an error. I meant 1693. Sorry. Back to the original recording. Just kind of weird to think about like the six month period um, kind of becoming this great time in American history. Kind of like the six month period we're in now that is changing 
all of history. So it really does not take a lot of time in order to become infamous. I guess this wasn't the summer of love. Not the summer of love. So were they all eating poisonous bread all summer and hallucinations of ergot really make you point to specific people in your town as witches? Maybe, maybe not. Who maybe knows? not. Probably not. I mean, ergotism might have played a role, um, but I kind of believe that politics played a much bigger role. So the theory of ergotism is just that it's a theory and not many people actually believe in it. If you think about it, we just had these few girl, these few girls, which were pointing fingers um, or seemed to be possessed. And you would think if the whole crop in this area, everyone would be eating the same crop. And so it would make the whole town quite crazy, which I'm sure it was kind of crazy compared to today's standards. So ergotism is just that, it's just a theory. It's hard to know what happened hundreds of years ago, but if it has a microbe connection, we want to talk about it. All right. So there you have it. That is the witch's rye bread at number seven. Moving on to number eight in our count up. So our next one can't really be attributed to a, a Halloween monster. Oh, but it's horrible. Yeah, it's more of the horror of Halloween. And this is necrotizing fasciitis. Oh man, this one's gonna make <laughs> your spine shiver constants chills down your spine so necrotizing wait 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 first i think we just got to say if you are at all squeamish do not look up necrotizing fasciitis and click on images on google because you will vomit yeah it is horrific it's haunting haunting forever you can't this is like one of those times you put an image in your mind and you will never ever forget about it I remember I was a couple rooms away and I heard Tess going, oh my God. It's, uh, uh. it's revolting. So don't do it. Don't say I didn't warn you. But we're going to tell you about it because I think you can stomach it. But if not, maybe fast forward a little. So what is necrotizing fasciitis? It is a type of soft tissue infection. Um, turned flesh eating disease. Just think about that for a second. Flesh eating eats your flesh. So necrotizing fasciitis literally means decaying infection of the fascia. What is the fascia? It's the connected tissue that connects the, the fat part of your skin to your muscle. Yeah. I remember when we were dissecting cats, we had to remove all the fascia, which was like sort of therapeutic in a weirdly morbid way. There is a lot of fascia to remove. It took, yeah. I don't know, like half the time of dissecting was removing fascia. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I remember I had to do that for a fetal pig. But, but not for frogs. No. Nope, no fascia, fascia when you're dissecting frogs. So the most common um, causative agent is uh, group strep A, and it's the fastest spreading and the most serious. Uh, there are other microbes that cause it, like um, Clostridium, E. coli, Klebsiella, um, Staph aureus, and others. So generally, you can have uh, a single microbe that causes this infection, but... Uh, Which is called monomicrobial. 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 But the more co common version is polymicrobial. So you have different bacterial species getting in there. 
So how do you get this? It is transmitted through like a break or a cut in the skin, bearing from burns, bites, um, and puncture wounds. And even tattoo, if you get a tattoo, it's a, a bunch of little puncture wounds. Right. And I remember seeing a case where this person was just a, she was a cook and she just had a little cut on her finger and ended up losing her whole arm. But we'll describe that a little bit further down in this story. So on, upon infection, this bacteria spreads, like we said, through the fascia. They, pr they produce endotoxins, which are toxins that are released from the bacteria as they die and break apart and exotoxins, which are toxins the bacteria secrete. Um, this restricts the blood supply to the tissue um, and causes the cells to be digested. Um, so some of the symptoms are, uh, you know, red, warm or swollen area of the skin that spreads quickly. Um, severe pain will come in about 12 to 48 hours and a fever. And the affected area spreads out quickly from uh, the initial infection point, sometimes uh, at a rate of an inch an hour. Yeah, and as you start losing the blood supply to the area, uh, the tissue begins to die mm -hmm. and um, also the nerve endings. So while within the first 20, 12 to 48 hours, you may experience severe pain, after that you may stop feeling everything. Yeah. That's fine. Since there's less blood flowing to the air, there's less oxygen, which is a better growing environment for the bacteria too. So then it can move into causing ulcers, blisters, black spots. You could start oozing pus. You might be a little dizzy, a little tired, diarrhea. That's fine. So this will uh, progress into sepsis. So that's when- Which is real bad. That's when uh, moves into the blood and starts moving throughout your body. And you have multiple organ failure. Also not good. You go into shock and then you die. And if you don't treat this, you're gonna die. There's no coming out of it. And even when it is treated, there's um, not a great, is it prognosis? Yeah, so there's only a, I think a third uh, survive. Um, no, I'm sorry, only uh, a third die even with treatment. So you only got a 66% uh, chance of survival when getting this. And if you don't get treatment, then 100% fatality. So how do we diagnose this? It's usually biopsy, blood work, CT scan, uh, MRI or ultrasound. And this is, um. This can be difficult because early symptoms look like the flu and there can be other superficial skin conditions that manifest in the same way. Only uh, 15 to 34% of patients with necrotizing fasciitis have an accurate admitting diagnosis. Yeah, and keep in mind this spreads can spread uh, one inch per hour. So while you could do biopsies and blood work, or MRIs, all these kind of take time. And so usually if doctors suspect it, it's just immediate antibiotics. And which in this case is you need that because this is gonna spread quickly and it's gonna get bad real quick. So like Tess said, antibiotic treatment is necessary, but that isn't always gonna resolve it. 
and how do they uh how do they treat the rest of it this is where it gets really nasty if you ever look at pictures they um will do something called debridement so what they do is they cut their skin open and they remove all the dead tissue (gasps) and so if you are strong enough to see the pictures you'll see just skin flaps uh black skin flaps covered in oozy pus and yellow and, and like then, red and blood and oh. and if it's the arm you just see the arm with just muscles on and nothing else because it eats away that connective tissue um this isn't always uh possible so they'll start amputation uh that case that i told you about that woman who had her all arm uh taken off they were trying to get ahead of the infection and so they were they kept removing sections of her arm until they got all the way to her collarbone wow surgery after surgery after surgery right (laughs) and there's no sure way to prevent this uh but the best way is uh good hygiene who would have thought So be sure to really clean out your wounds. Yeah, and if you have wounds that require bandage changes, change those bandages. Don't just leave them festering. And also avoid bodies of water, like hot tubs, whirlpools, and swimming pools, even the ocean. Uh, There was a Mm -hmm. case in September this year where five people were infected by... uh, Vibrio Volinicus, I believe. I don't know if this one's Vibrio Volinicus. It is Vibrio Volinicus. It is. is. Um, So they got it from swimming in brackish water. Brackish water is that water that mixes between, you know, a river and the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so Vibrio Volinicus lives in the ocean and lives in Loves salt water. Loves brackish water. And can get up in there and cause necrotizing fasciitis. And I've been to a Vibrio conference before, and this is one of the bacteria they like to uh, track in the oceans. And all the presentations show as the temperatures get warmer, uh, you see this going further and further up the coastline. Mm-hmm. So that's the horrifying story of necrotizing fasciitis. We do hope nobody listening or ever gets this horrendous disease because, um, well, all the reasons we just said. Right. Right. Are we ready for number nine? We are ready for number nine. Okay, guys. This one is such a direct connection to this Halloween character that we couldn't not include it in this countdown. So number nine goes to Michael Vibrio species, which is another vampire. Now we did vampire number one, we're doing it again. And I think you'll see why. So Michael Vibrio species is a parasite. Parasites are disturbing yet fascinating. They, like vampires, feed off of the living for their own survival sometimes by literally sucking the life from their prey. Now, Mycovibrio species 
search for their victims and latch on to the cell, leaching the nutrients from its prey and feeding off the life source for its own survival, just like a vampire. And it inevitably ends up killing the microbe that it is hunting. Now, lucky for us, mycovibrio um, do not like human cells. Yay. Their ideal meal is actually microbial. Their favorite dishes are harmful, are microbes that are typically harmful to mammals and humans. So interestingly, um, it's unable to replicate without a host. The death of, of another is the only way for it to survive. And despite this highly dependent nature, microvibrial species actually has all the genes it needs to function. And so what we can, what people are starting to do or starting to think of microvibrio as is potential living antibiotics, which means you could use them for medicine. And why is this better than antibiotics? Because antibiotics cause bacteria to develop resistance and mess up my, our own microbiome. Yeah, not only that is antibiotics are usually broad spectrum, meaning that they'll kill all of the microbes or, or a lot of your microbes in your gut, which can cause a number of um, side effects such as diarrhea, which is not great. But um, something like microvibrio species can be targeted. It will only feast on certain microbes. And so if you have a certain condition that is caused by a microbe, you can send in kind of this sniper microbe to go in and just snipe out those bad, particular bad microbes. And so people are starting to look at this. And in one study, they found a hundredfold reduction in biofilm um, of a cell when microvibrio originis savarius was mixed with pathogen P. originosa. Um, so if you didn't listen to part one, biofilms are a sticky protective coating that microbes can produce to protect themselves. And these biofilms can enhance the microbes protection from antimicrobials up to a thousand percent. So again, this microvibrio, this living antibiotic um, can penetrate this biofilm in ways that it might be even more effective than antibiotics. So the ability to not only prey on P. originosa, but also to disrupt its protective shield makes this sneaky vampiric, vampiric, is that a word? Vampiric. Oh, is that how you pronounce that? Yes. Vampiric microbe, a very viable option to control this pathogen. But of course, you have to make sure it's safe. An enemy of your enemy is only a friend if they are also not an enemy to you. But currently, there is no evidence of microvibrio being harmful to humans or mice. I think they did that study in mice. I'm a little hesitant to see it being treated for gut well, I pathogens. Well, I think they are a long ways away from using this as a therapeutic method in medicine, but it, I think it holds a lot of promise. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, I'd like to, I wonder if they'll uh, use that for like, you know, those triple antibiotic ointments. I wonder if Oh yeah. that could be used like as an alternative. Scary. Yeah, we So you see. don't get necrotizing fasciitis. <laughs> so we just looped it right back around. So we'll see where the study of microvibrio goes, but a very vampiric microbe indeed. Moving on to number 10 in our 13 monstrous microbes, we have werewolves. And what do we associate with werewolves but rabies, lysivirus? I thought it was lysivirus. Lysivirus? Lysivirus? 
Probably the lysa virus. Lysa virus. Maybe it's lysa virus. <laughs> <laughs> so Western prose featuring werewolves is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Which are real old if you don't know. But they've made a more profound appearance of both Greek and Nordic folklore. Also real old. These things have been around. Yeah. Today, the most common depiction of werewolves are people who are uh, during a full moon morph into a ravenous wolf-human hybrid and over are overcome with rage and bloodlust. There are many conditions that might have spawned these stories, such as hypertrichosis, which is long hair on the face and body. I think that's the one, like the wolf man, like Ripley's Believe It or Not, where he grows hair Mm -hmm. all over his body. Um, Porphoria, which is sensitivity to light, or lycanthropia, believing you are an animal. But today we'll discuss uh, rabies. Which might be a microbial lineage to the foundation of werewolf folklore. That's true. This, uh, this disease has been around since those uh, since Greek times. So what is rabies? It is a virus. Um, it is particularly an RNA virus thought to have originated in Africa and many mammals are uh, susceptible to the disease. I think it's every mammal susceptible to disease. Oh yes. Sorry. Any mammal. My apologies. Uh, in North America, bats are the main vectors, but in other parts of the world, uh, dogs are the primary vectors. That's because we have a pretty good vaccine campaign in America. And most of you can't really get a dog without giving a rabies vaccine. Right. So here we have bats as a major problem, but if we didn't have such a good rabies campaign for our little furry friends, I'm sure we would see dogs as a major vector of the disease. And this virus is only made up of five proteins, which is crazy to think. I always have a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah, we have all these genes and all these cells to make all these organs and you can't kill as many people as rabies can. Yeah. And then... Uh, <laughs> or infect every single mammal known to man. Yeah. Well, the virus is five proteins. HIV has like eight genes. It's like these very small genomes that are so devastating. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And once the symptoms of rabies appear, the disease is almost always fatal. This virus attacks the neurons of the central nervous system. The symptoms it causes are things like fever, headache, nausea, agitation, aggression, anxiety, confusion, excessive salivation, insomnia, and etc. Wow, that's a lot of symptoms. Patients also develop hydrophobia or the fear of water. Which seems so interesting. I yeah, out like... of everything, why water? Yeah. So it becomes so difficult to swallow water. Um, many decide just to not drink uh, water at all. And uh, their hydrophobia is so intense that violent spasms occur in their throat. So what's the treatment? Um, Well, we'll get to the treatment, but it can definitely be prevented uh, with a vaccine. Uh, If it's given as soon as you are exposed, the outcomes are great. You're not going to get the uh, virus or you're not going to get the disease but you have to get a vaccine on day one, three, seven, and 14. And these vaccines are typically pretty painful from what I've heard. Anywho, (laughs) 
So what's the treatment of someone that has active? Well, at first we should say that the best thing to be prevent rabies is not to go near animals that have rabies. Vaccinate your fur babies. Don't go near raccoons that um, are foaming at the mouth. Right. So that's the best prevention measure. There's no way to accurately diagnose an animal uh, that has rabies unless you chop its head off. Yeah. And look inside. Which is um, just causes death. So doesn't really help if the animal doesn't have rabies. You just kill it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why you just get the vaccine right off. If you just see an animal that's acting funny, stay away from the animal. I think they still always kill it, even if you get the vaccine. Oh no, they always they they kill the baby. Uh, the baby. They kill the animal. <laughs> Don't kill the, <laughs> Don't kill it the could baby. Could be a baby animal. Yeah. Kill a baby raccoon. But you're still gonna get vaccinated if they suspect it. Yeah. So to treat this, there's something called the Milwaukee Protocol. Gee, I wonder where that came from. Topeka, actually, Kansas. Oh, wow. Why is they name it Milwaukee then? No, it was actually made in Milwaukee by Rodney Wilbury Jr. And so what this does is this puts uh, the patient in a chemically induced coma and they're given antiviral drugs. Even though this is a treatment, it's not, I, it's the best treatment, but it's still not a good treatment because people still come out and they generally have a lot of brain damage as a result. Yeah, and, and some of them still die. A lot of them still die. There's only a few that have ever survived rabies. So now we got to talk about Ozzy Osbourne. Of course. Yeah. If you don't know who Ozzy Osbourne is, then you're probably a baby. So Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, uh, however you want to call him, is a big uh, rock and roll star. And he was one of the pioneers of heavy metal. Heavy metal? Yeah, and he was also one of the pioneers of reality TV shows, I guess, too. Yeah. And so there's a famous incident where a during a concert, uh, someone threw a bat on stage and he bit the head off the bat. Which is like, one, why would you go to a concert with a bat in your bag? Two, how did you get the bat in your bag? Probably caught and killed it. No, because Ozzy said it moved when it got into his throat, so it wasn't oh. killed. It was He somehow caught a bat, made it unconscious... For a select period of time, threw it in his bag, went to the rock and roll show, got out the bat, threw it on the stage, and then Ozzy, who was, of course, probably on loads of drugs, picked it up and then bit the head off because all of this seems logical actions that normal human beings should definitely take on a normal day of their lives. Right. Uh, he claims that he didn't think it was a real bat at the time. Uh, Which I can sort of believe because like, why would you think someone in your stands in your audience would bring a live bat to your show? And he thought it was a good idea because he usually spat in the face of norm normative culture anyways. Yeah, there's probably a lot of pressures he felt to do weird and absurd things on the stage. But long story short, he bit uh, the head off of a bat. And so... He was rushed to the hospital and he had to get these series of treat, uh, vaccine shots. And, um, you know, the rest, it's kind of a part of rock and roll folklore, I guess, at this point. 
Uh, did you see that there's actually a plush bat toy with a detachable head? No, I did not know that existed. Yeah, on the 40th anniversary of the bat beheading, Ozzy released a plush bat which has a detachable head. So if you would like to safely bite the head of off of a bat, I suggest getting this plush toy um, and then you won't have to get the rabies vaccine. Yeah, that's one but way to do don't it. don't swallow the plush toy. <laughs> I don't know why I feel like I need to say that, but you know, if someone's gonna bring a live bat into a rock and roll concert, then I probably should say, don't eat plush toys. Well, everybody, that's the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please subscribe or share this episode with a friend. You can find us at microbigals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. You can also visit us on Twitter at microbigals. And on Facebook, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And remember... Feed your your mind, mind, feed feed your your guts, guts, make your your microbes microbes love you you much. much.